Happy Thursday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably one of the best uh, space history movies ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim, I am I'm one of the hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And we have a, a great, uh, great guest. Uh, we always we always look to the experts on this show. And uh, I'm surrounded by curators today. So. <laughs> uh, uh, Jennifer Lavasser from uh, the uh, uh, National Air and Space Museum, who is, like, like the rest of us, uh, as we're recording this, uh, living at home and uh, trying to work, work the work from afar. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming back on the show again. Happy to be on again. This is always a great time, and uh, I, it's uh, it's always nice to reconnect with friends who uh, you not only not only do I not get to see right now, but I you know rarely get to talk to. So this is a bit of a treat, um, and it's also nice to be talking to someone other than my children and my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy's got to use her grown-up voice today. So let me... <laughs> exactly, now, Jennifer. When you're home, do you find yourself like curating your own stuff? Uh, just out of curiosity, like, like now's a good time to organize my collection of whatever. Do you, do you, um, you know what's funny that? is you bring up the idea of collections, and that's funny because I actually don't really collect anything personally. I mean, I have things that I accumulate just like everybody else. So I have a lot of books. Um, I have things that are important to me in terms of my, um, you know, my own story. So I have things like, you know, a football helmet from the University of Michigan, because that's where I went, um, you know, things that kind of like tell my story. But and we do um, collect things that represent our, our trips. We travel a lot. And so we often bring home something that's kind of like a signature item from whatever place we go to, but I do not collect anything with any seriousness. My last real collection was in college. It was shot glasses, which I happily (laughs) sold for $5 at a garage sale, uh, many years ago. So I've tried to avoid that, but in the sense of organizing, yeah, you know, I think of it more of, um, you know, like I, I sit in my office here at home Um, but in our sort of public spaces I'm very much the tidying type I'm like I like to keep things organized I think you know in terms of what we would normally do and in an exhibit or something you know I don't you know I don't want any guests to my home my home see how crazy it can look when you're you know living like this and right now nobody's coming into our house so it's okay but yes I'm very much about organizing so I remember when we had our furlough in the federal government about a year ago, just over a year ago. That was my real like curate myself kind of moment. So I've already done that. <laughs> so now I don't have it to do, which is a little unusual. So I'm doing things that are more like puzzles and um, things that engage my brain and don't necessarily take a lot of effort. I always tell people the story of when you curated my office. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer came to be a, a speaker at Space Day. She was our keynote speaker. And I have the famous Earthrise photo hung on the wall, and I had it in a uh, landscape uh, sort of way I had it framed. And that's not how they saw it. So Jennifer was immediately fixed it and got up on the uh, on the wall there and changed its uh, orientation <laughs> and uh, to the correct uh, way. And 
Uh, I, I have a picture of that actually. I'm like, here she is at hard at work, creating my <laughs> my collection of. But in true to form, though, like a couple months later, Frank Borman came and he was like, "Oh, you finally hung it the right way, huh?" You know, and I'm just like, like, well, I didn't. My friend noticed it was wrong. <laughs> it's always such a pleasure to know that it can be appreciated by the people who are there. So yeah. and it's a story. It's a story I like to. Re- I repeat that story and the story, um, you know, of the mission itself all the time because of that. So it's a. Uh, yeah, it's one of those most unique moments, and and it's worthy of kind of telling. And you know, and, and as we know from even the moments that you know we're going to talk about here, that there are lighthearted moments and all these experiences too. So hopefully, everybody's having some lighthearted moments and some fun being kind of isolated from each other. But you know, in an isolated state like these astronauts were, um, you know, there are lighthearted moments too, and that's. I think reassuring and I think we've seen a lot of that in this current state of things is that astronauts strangely have not strangely but appropriately have become a source of inspiration and knowledge for all of us and what it's like to be in a situation where you can't necessarily go and hug your family members every you know every day or go and visit your best friend or anything like that so it's become a good teaching moment for uh for NASA and for the astronauts I think to be able to talk about the challenges of that situation. I was saying to Chris uh, before we before we started the uh, the program that I keep picturing one of the hardest things they're going to have after this quarantine is over is getting people to volunteer for those uh, Mars simulation missions where you go out in the <laughs> desert because like I've done that I've been there <laughs> yep we've all done it and nobody's yeah. going to want to go back to it yeah uh, somebody yeah. said that what's going to be the most symbolic uh, you know picture to come out of all this and and I said it was simply a meme that just had somebody saying like. I finished Netflix, all of it, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. Oh, wow. wow. Well, uh, we are here in uh, in uh, uh, Minute 84 talking about uh, the particular subject that we're seeing is what it's like to be isolated, be, to be away from people you love. It's uh, uh, Jim Lovell floats down from the... Uh, uh, through the docking port of uh, from the command module and sees uh, Fred Hayes, and Fred's looking at uh, pictures and... and uh, uh, a, beautiful uh, little note that his uh, wife and his children uh, sent to him that says touch the moon for us I love you Mary and then their son writing uh, underneath it uh, you know love Fred he couldn't write it so he just kind of scratched it because he's too or love Fred and then Stephen who was too young to write kind of did a squiggle there Um, but it's just a, a beautiful thing I mean I've seen a lot of ephemera personal effects of astronauts I think of Charlie Duke's uh, family photo left on the moon um, you know all the all those kind of moments. They're very personal and they're very they're very fragile. I mean that's why we call them ephemera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would think that those those items as a as a curator of a space museum, that must be one of the, the hardest things to preserve to keep at you know to keep for future generations when it wasn't meant to be there very long. Yeah, and in, in this case, uh, you know, thinking of, of those kinds of bits of memorabilia, in a sense, uh, the one instance, it's not an Apollo instance, but one instance I know we've had a real challenge with is within my experience, uh, my time at the museum, um, it was which was very early on, was the loss of Columbia in 2003. And it was a very real moment for the museum, obviously, because of the 
the story, you know, that the role we play in telling the space shuttle story. But it was also, um, it, for me, it was a moment to see just what role the museum plays in terms of being a source of, a site of commemoration and memory. And so seeing people actually come into the museum and bring things that were meaningful to them and that they wanted to leave at the museum as sort of a creating a makeshift memorial as it sometimes ends up becoming it, you know it was a, it was really touching and it was really um it was special i was still you know i was i think less than a year into my um into my employment at the museum and and i was the person that got to basically go down and collect those items, pick them up, catalog them. And you see this a lot at a place like the Vietnam War veteran, the Vietnam War Memorial down here in uh, DC as well. And the American History Museum, part of the Smithsonian, they've had an exhibit of that kind of material in the past. And it's, it th it's those kinds of things that can be very personally meaningful to people that are not intended for long duration display or any of that. It can be really challenging. And so we've come, there was one one item in particular, actually I'll mention a couple of items um, that we collected during that 2003 moment. There was someone who left a yellow rose and we ended up having that preserved. And you know, people can preserve and press flowers. And so we had that preserved. And then we also had a um, someone leave a um, origami crane which I thought was quite beautiful. And those are things that are so, it was so small and they are so fragile that we have to think really seriously about how to manage those. And it can be really tough. Um, the personal memorability of the astronauts is a little bit different in that we haven't always had uh, relationships with the astronauts to get some of that. But of course, the one instance that we can always point to is our former director, Michael Collins, and he left a number of personal items with us. Uh, one of my favorites in that instance is a boomerang that he received while on the world tour um, when he was down in Australia. And so it's just, it's got this great, you know, like pa hand painted quality to it. And, um, and we had that on display out at the Edvarhazi Center. So we have these, yeah, really unique instances of things like that. Um, and it's, yeah, they can be definitely, because of the materials in particular, can be really challenging to display and to preserve in the collection. And it, it must be tricky, I would think, uh, to curate what would become history that is a current event at the time that you're collecting it. Um, I can recall back in, uh, back in 2002, uh, the American History Museum had a display of artifacts from 9-11, and they had things like um, pagers and cell phones and ID badges from the World Trade Center and from the Pentagon. Um, uh, I was, uh, at the time, my, my daughter was in middle school, and uh, we had taken a bunch of uh, middle school kids down to the museum uh, to see different uh, different displays and that exhibit was just opened and uh one of the kids that was with me as we walked through the museum of american history he said well this isn't history this just happened and it took him a little while to understand uh, that he's living in history it's just it'll be history to his children and their children and i can imagine trying to make those decisions about curation and what you keep and what you don't keep must be extremely difficult when you're in the 
especially in um, emotional situations in historical events when they're happening. Yeah, I actually did a little bit of work on that as a graduate student. I was a graduate student here at George Washington University and working in museum studies classes at the time. And that was actually the exact question I had, too, in working on a curatorial um, curatorial writing class, basically, was how do and research, how do we think about collecting in the moment from events that, you know, are we, we don't yet have historical perspective on? And that was a particularly relevant question to ask at the time when I was in that class and it worked out. And so I did a informal survey of curators. I went, um, talked to a few folks at a few museums in the DC area and up in New York and asked them, you know, what were their plans? What were their hopes? You know, what criteria were they using? And it's it's really, um, uh, it's, a, it's something that you do you know, very much, I don't want to say fly by the seat of your pants, but it's sort of in the moment and you're, you're doing it in a very ad hoc way and kind of coming up with these things in the moment. And then years later, as time wears on, you, you know, you can definitely gather different kinds of perspectives. There are other people whose opinions may come into play. And that's something certainly at the Smithsonian we experience all the time is, we're uh, not just independent. We can't just put the kinds of things out there that we want to put out there. Some people may have may want to challenge us on the perspective that we bring as historians. And so we go through our own struggles and thinking about what's the appropriate way to display something, what's not appropriate to display, but to preserve as a part of history. So we have to ask those big questions. And there can be particularly challenging ones when it comes to things of a religious nature or a highly personal nature, um, or in the instance of something like this, I'm sure folks in American history in particular are thinking about how we can collect from this moment that we're in now and from, you know, a pandemic, how do we think about that? And I know that's, you know, certainly something that's happening within the Smithsonian because that's something, you know, we can do as a national institution is really look at a big picture of how it's affecting the big the grand scheme of things and then there will be museums around the country i'm sure that will preserve more of a local story so it's um it's a it's a it's a delicate balance a delicate dance you kind of have to play it by ear a little bit and then go back and look back on it you know later and see how you felt in that moment as a curator or a historian and then how that might be informed by more perspective that we gain with time wow it it, it really is stunning i just um I'm I'm always impressed by the museum people that I work that <laughs> that, that I talk with that, the work that they do. They constantly are they're 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 never operating on simmer. They're always seem to be full burners going. What do I do about this? And you know they're always taking the the long view on things while they're trying to figure out how how are they going to move this giant box of stuff that got uh, donated from you know one state to three time zones over. <laughs> yeah, the only thing more challenging, and this is particularly relevant in the case of my museum, is. We often uh, have a lot of pressure or feel pressure, it's self-imposed sometimes, of talking about things that haven't happened yet. And so because we are a museum of technology, a history of technology and science, uh, engineering, you know, we think of ourselves that way as a history museum. You know, history requires you to look backwards, but we're often asked to do things that require us to look backwards from a point in time that is actually in the future. So the projects we work on, you know, they need to deal with the present and how do you collect from the present when the present is literally happening around you? 
Um, a good example is I became, in the fall, became curator of the space shuttle and the space station. Well, the space shuttle's complete, you know, it's been done for 10, almost 10 years. That's not quite so challenging. What's challenging is to talk about the space station because it's still up there, which is an amazing thing and I think made it more amazing these days when we can think about what astronauts are doing up there. Um, but it's challenging to collect from a program that is ongoing and it's even more challenging to collect and think about collecting and curating um, items that come from programs that haven't really gotten off the ground in somewhat literal terms. Uh, how do we talk about going to the moon and Mars on things like Artemis and Artemis missions and the Gateway Project and the things that are still in either conceptual or very early production phases? And so, um, and how, you know, and of course, I think we have to, you know, say, what happens if they don't happen at all? Um, you know, how will this pandemic influence larger projects going on through the government too? So um, in just a kind of a blink of an eye, we've moved from taking these things as granted and yet now we're looking at them with a little bit different eyes. Yeah, it's, I, I keep thinking about, every time I, I look at pictures of the space station and stuff, and, and I, I think of you often on, on these things, I just keep wondering who gets the ship's bell and who, you know, how are she, <laughs> yes. I, I know that the Smithsonian has dibs on things, but in an international venture, who do you have to negotiate with? It's like you want the, uh, if you want something off the uh, FGB or if you, if you want, you know, you'd love to have PMA-1 to come down so that you could, mm -hmm. you know, display it, but how are you going to get it down from orbit? Yeah, without, you know? it's, and, and, it's not easy <laughs> yeah even as but the smithsonian we don't get a lot of pull with all of this it's very much in the hands of somebody else to decide if something can happen so there's there are small things that we can get back obviously um we'll be acquiring the double tree cookie that was made you know baked in space and so that's something small that can return and we can manage those the big things are really challenging we used to get questions all the time when the space shuttle was still flying you know could you fly up with the space shuttle would somebody fly up with the space shuttle and bring the hubble space telescope back well in the <laughs> 2000s you know as great as that sounded we were still using hubble and it was still functional and it's still functional now um you know, would it be possible to go up and get it? That would be tremendous. And obviously, I don't think the Smithsonian would turn down that opportunity. But um, the reality is it's not really a viable project to, you know, go and retrieve something like that and bring it back safely without a functional space shuttle at this point, which really isn't possible. Yeah, well, I mean, you did the next best thing by having the Skylab backup. I think that's that, mm. that kind of is the the uh, the evaluation sample of what you can do. Just <laughs> have the next thing that was going yep. to go. So absolutely, um, and it's still going to be there on your uh, on your return to. Uh, to the mall, right? I mean, it, it will it, be. Yeah, it's so big. I don't think there's any chance of moving it even. Um, there are a few items as part of our big renovation of the building downtown that we've determined to just be too large to move out. They're too complicated. I've I've looked through the drawings and the all the correspondence about how that was put into place in the first place back in 75, 1975. It came in by barge and it was dropped off in uh, sections. So if you think of Skylab like a giant tube, uh, it was cut into three slices, kind of three pie-shaped slices, and they were they're then stacked. So they were unstacked, put on a barge, and then brought back and stacked in the building. And uh, there's even a, a map in the file of the route that was taken from the Navy Yard where the barge stopped all the way up to the museum. 
And some of those streets don't even exist anymore because of all the construction and development that's happened, especially in the Navy Yard area. So to recreate that, to be able to get it out of the way or to move anything is really kind of unimaginable. And so I think just to disassemble it would take, we've tried to reach out to, um, you know, people, old Martin Marietta uh, engineers who put it together the first time and and that's not really gotten us anywhere. So the only other thing so far I think that we've protected without moving out of the building is the um, front of the 747 that's installed in the the other end of the building that's being worked on right now. That's inside a giant air-conditioned box basically and it, you can imagine what it's like to put a box around the nose of a 740 not just the <laughs> nose but the front end of a 747 it's a big box <laughs> and um, it's got quite the air handling unit attached to it to be able to protect it from the elements and protect it from all the work that's going on and so it, I, as far as I know right now Skylab will have to go through a similar process um, of, wow. of protection when we get down to that end of the building and probably um, I think we're looking at two to three years from now. Wow. The, the, compared to what you guys are doing, that uh, that carbon dioxide scrubber on Apollo 13 <laughs> sounds like a piece of cake. It's... Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. This is way well, beyond that. <laughs> well, well, let's let's talk about some of the things that are coming up in this minute. One of the things that uh, Lovell is talking with Hayes about, you know, Hayes isn't feeling so good. So he said, we'll get some aspirin out of the medical kit. And I know that you've you've worked on preserving uh, the Apollo 11 uh, medical kit. And let's let's talk a little bit about that, how it came to the Smithsonian and what you have to do to keep it all together in, in 50 years. Yeah, I mean, medical medical kits and small bags. And you know, that's one of the things we have. Uh, we have a fair number of those within the collection, um, mostly for the Mercury through Apollo era and into Skylab. We have a fair number of ones that were used either for training or for just configuration work Um, you know there's obviously a need to make sure everything fits inside a spacecraft before you actually fill it up and so um, we have a number of them that are just empty empty bags basically but the apollo 11 medical kit that we were really excited to to put out on um, tour with the apollo 11 um, command module tour that we just wrapped up this um, this year uh, was really kind of a, a lesson for all of us in thinking through something that we didn't really you know, plan on dealing with or considering, but because it was a traveling show and this stuff had to go into a crate and be shipped to a number of different sites and between sites, the thing that we hadn't really thought about was what are the actual contents of this medical kit. Now we think about anything, you know, these are beta cloth packages um, about the size of a shoebox generally. And uh, when opening them up, we've seen them before and I had seen them before. They have little pockets for all the little things that you might need. And one of the things that amazes me is, you know, how well built they are, but also the consideration that was given for every possible need under the sun. And so all of the medical needs you can imagine that you might have in your medic- medicine cabinet and more are considered in that in that kit. And so you open it up and there are things like Band-Aids and um, aspirin, as is mentioned in the minute um, by Jim Lovell, but also things like eye drops and um, other kinds of um, medicines that, you know, wouldn't necessarily strike me as being, you know, a something you would need in space but were quite quite valuable so they have things for digestive issues um which is a 
conversation for you know other parts of this movie and other stories related to Apollo but um, they also had sleeping medication because it wasn't a guarantee that astronauts would sleep well there's uh, everybody experiences sleep different in space and so they had sleeping pills but you know drugs generally um, if you think of them in in classes or schedules as the DEA would would consider them and that's really where we went with the story of the Apollo 11 kit was we looked at everything and everything was cataloged in this kit and we had to think about is there anything in here because it is a medical kit and because they were prepared for pretty much every scenario that they could come up with were there were there any drugs in there that even though they are almost 50 years old and were 50 years old at the time do we need to worry about transporting them across state lines which sounds like just ludicrous in a way like this sounds like we're talking about something like transporting alcohol across state lines in the 20s you know it sounds like we're you know it sounds like a very um we're doing something very dangerous but really you're talking about a teeny tiny vial of something and um but i did go and do my homework as a curator i made sure that anything that was in that kit was either um good to go it wasn't at a um, a schedule that would be uh potentially challenged by anybody who um, might inspect that that crate as it shipped. And we did actually remove a few items. They rose up the, the, the level a little too far for our comfort. And they, we basically, the way these are constructed is there are, I, I like to think of it as pages. So when you open the, the top of the medical kit, um, there are these sort of pages of, um, of different kinds of medicines and you just flip to the next one and we just made sure that we had what one was on display was actually full so you would never have noticed that there were things missing um, but we did keep a couple things back just because we were a little sensitive about um, potentially transporting them and, and being questioned about it I think there's um, Demerol is probably in there there might have been morphine in there as well and those are just a little more problematic than aspirin and um, you know things like gas drops or something you know like pills <laughs> yeah. for gas which I know they would take to um, I think it's seek and all is what they called it back then so those were the ones where like yeah that's not such a big deal but there were a few we just wanted to be a little careful about so um, but yeah, I mean, they could have run into any instance. And most of the time when you hear about astronauts being, you know, ill or injured in space, I know one um, Dr. Dan Barry, who flew on the space shuttle, was asked this question at the museum one time, you know, what was the most um, dangerous thing you ever had to deal with, you know, medically in space? And he said it was a paper cut. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for the most part, these guys aren't facing super challenging difficult issues um you know they're monitoring themselves just like they would be in a medical in a doctor's office basically they've got the the biosensors attached to them which you know becomes a a point in this movie as well but you know having any kind of other concern had to be addressed through these medical kits and so they tried to come up with every possible need they could um i think they got a just they got it covered pretty well considering what we've looked at in these kits before it's pretty impressive um how many angles they tried to uh, cover in terms of medical needs um so yeah it's 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 pretty cool and they're you know it's kind of like its own little time capsule too to think about what was considered important back in you know 1969 1970 when they were packing these Wow, it, I I I think the two the big medical story that was uh, that was always pressed at the time, well, was later turned into a commercial, was uh, Afrin and using uh, keeping your nose clear. Where, while, while, poor Wally Shara and his uh, sin, sinusitis that that had come down, yeah. and of course, there's no way your 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 sinuses don't drain in space because everything's floating around. So he had a, a difficult go of that. Uh, uh, from what I had 
uh, understood that after that there was a lot more attention paid to head colds. So um, were the Apollo Eleven uh, medicines mostly geared toward decongestant? I was there I was were yeah out. yeah there were definitely decongestants in there as well. Um, I don't remember if it were any sprays or anything, but I want to say that there were some, you know, sort of like allergy medicines and things like antihistamines um, to basically try to alleviate that because they don't want grumpy astronauts up there in space again. So, um, you know, not, yeah, not ideal. And I think, you know, obviously in, in this instance, you see, you know, and it, it does speak to the whole, the whole isolation issue and being in a, in a challenging situation and, um, you know, the times I've heard Fred Hayes, and it's been some time since I last heard him talk about it, but when we had him visit the museum a number of years ago and talk about Apollo 13 and about his time uh, flying the um, Enterprise, in particular the shuttle, uh, he... He spoke so in such a a really great way about how this movie depicts the situation and the fact that there actually is probably added tension in the movie. And even for that, it doesn't really feel like there's really that much tension, not compared to what um, the crew of Apollo 7 experienced or later crews um, certainly experienced, too. So it speaks to the sort of psychological uh, planning and, and luck in a way that they got with even having Swigert come into the mission is that in this tense of a scenario, nobody there really lost it too badly. Um, they didn't, you know, uh, kind of freak out and, um, you know, really mentally or any other way kind of have a significant problem. So um, it, I think is a good example of how to really prepare for these things in a lot of different ways. You know, you have to have things on hand, but you also have to have prepared well enough in advance for the mental stress that it would bring you normally. But under these circumstances, um, you know, uh, it's even extra challenge, more challenging than usual. So, um, I, you know, I think the temptation for some of us in this stressful situation we are all dealing with, and we heard this story in, in Virginia just uh, the last couple of days, is um, how uh, beer and, and liquor sales have fared over the last few weeks um, of so many people being home. Um, these yeah, guys didn't have been... beer and liquor up there, but I think they probably would have been enjoying some if they'd been able to. Yeah, I find it quite telling that uh, in many states have declared them essential services. They are essential store, services. So. <laughs> oh, yes. And anyone who lives in Virginia or knows about our liquor laws here in Virginia, know you can't buy liquor at a beer or wine. You can't only buy beer and wine at a grocery store. You have to go to a state-run store to get liquor. And the fact that the state has declared its own liquor stores as essential is just kind of ironic. And um, but it's also really uh, humorous in its own way. You just kind of walk in and it's, you know, there's, you know, everybody knows why you're there. You know, there's no mystery yeah. to it all at these, at this point. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more tomorrow about uh, uh, Fred Hayes' continuing uh, uh, medical problems and, and some interesting diagnoses that, that came about. So uh, uh, Jennifer, we talk, talk with you about that tomorrow. That would be great. That'd be awesome. Okay. Well, uh, for folks uh, listening in, if you would like to reach out to us, we're always available on the social media on uh, Facebook at uh, Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. Go search for us there. We'd love to hear from you. On Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. And of course, if you haven't missed any of our previous 
83 minutes, uh, which you shouldn't because they're great episodes all. And Jennifer's in some of them, so you got to go back and listen to earlier ones. Uh, They're always available uh, at the big site, Apollo13Minute, Apollo13Minute.com, or on any of your favorite pod distributors like uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Spotify, or TuneIn, or all those other ones. Uh, But anyway, join us here tomorrow, and we'll talk some more about illness up in space. It looks like we're coming up on uh, loss of signal in about 30 seconds, so we'll see you here next time as we finish out the week on the Apollo 13 Minute.